You can kick your fancy ales, you can drink them by the flagon, but the only food for the brave and true comes from the Green Dragon. Welcome to the Green Dragon Podcast. This is Jeremy with Stu. Hello. From Miniature Realm Studio and the Geno 52 Podcast, talking about painting and other things. It's a good episode. I'm going to look forward to this one. <laughs> other things means read between the lines, probably random, off topic. We go down cul-de-sacs and God knows what. Well, thanks for thanks for inviting me on. Been a listener for uh, for quite a while, actually, long longer than I've been playing the game. Um, so it's been uh, we've chatted a little bit before on online, but it's been good to good to be come on the show and um, talk at you, probably. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's an interesting one as well because I've listened to you on on your own podcast, which is not Lord of the Rings related, but I don't mind that. And it's it's really interesting to talk in person as well, or well, not really in person, but it's interesting to talk nonetheless. Yeah, especially when, well, I suppose it's a weird thing that we're both used to each other's voices, but not actually spoken to each other before today, which is quite odd. Usually when it's, it's one way or the other, um, someone's used to hearing your voice loads from listening to you, but this is <laughs> works both ways. But um, well, thanks for listening to, to my podcast. I don't think there'll be many Lord of the Rings fans that would be interested in um, what I talk about, but um on there but yeah it's good fun podcasting yeah it's a bit interesting to finally talk about something on the same topic rather than both talking about different things absolutely and now i'm gonna disagree with you there as well because in the australian community we have a big crossover between the horace heresy community and the lord of the rings community so uh people like michael john who's pretty big on the heresy community is also one of our yep. leaders in the lord of the rings community Okay, yeah, I'm aware of. I've not met him, but I'm. Uh, I think he listens to us, and uh, I've seen seen some of his painting. Actually, fantastic work. He's done some of his recent things. And um, we have a few. I mean, the same with same with any system. I'm a bit of an advocate of not bashing other systems. Um, I think I've been quite vocal on my own podcast about it. You get an awful lot of sort of tribal nature with different systems, and people always blame other systems for the way they behave and things. And I think war gamers are war gamers at the end of the day. And there are slight subcultures and things that are sort of uh, come come to the fore within these subcultures and subgroups. But um, I think there is always some crossover. I don't know there's a lot within the, um, the, the... I mean, I'm very new to the Lord of the Rings scene in the UK, but there doesn't doesn't seem to be quite as many of the, the faces I've seen and crossing over to some of the other systems. But maybe more and more of those will, uh, will come to the fore as I get to meet more and more people. Quite possibly. I can't really comment on your scene too much. Now, first of all, I want to introduce you, Stu, a little bit because we've gone straight into it and the listeners are are (laughs) anticipating who you are and why you're on here. So firstly, I would like you to tell us a little about your journey in Lord of the Rings and when did it start? In what what medium? Was it books? Was it the movie? Was it the game? And so on. Oh, so first introduction to anything that would fall under the sort of sci-fi fantasy geek culture and it goes back to about seven i think my mum read the hobbit to me it's one of my first memories of of my mum reading anything to me that was you know that had, had an impact on my life and it kind of drifted away a little bit then at that age reading lord of the rings uh was a little bit much for me so i think um hobbit was something i, I picked up myself and read myself again and then i think my mum had a copy this is this is going to date me now and age me a little bit it was a vhs um of the Ralph Bashke, um a Lord of the Rings film. I remember watching that quite a few times. So that was my first kind of look at Lord of the Rings main. Um, and then I did all the other gaming things. So I got into to, to, to Warhammer in, in general through Hero Quest and things like that as a as a, as a sort of a, a boy and then growing into teens, played lots of other different systems, lots of different games. 
and got out of it when I went to to uni. I've still, you know, I've read Lord of the Rings multiple times during that period and watched the films when they came out. Um, and I wasn't gaming at that point, but I did pick up I did pick up the first edition of the Lord of the Rings game. Um, I was in a shared house with mates just after uni. I was uh, a closet nerd at that point, so I remember hiding it away. <laughs> um, nerd shame as it as it, things have changed a bit now. And I kind of got back into gaming about ten years ago, and I played mainly warhammer fantasy and a bit of war machine and um and then very recently i've got into horus heresy 30k so that's about three years ago i do a podcast for it um but i've always meant to play spg but just never got around to it i've been been listening to you guys for for, for, for a long time now I've been watching the palantir on youtube for quite a long time just keeping an eye on the system but never really making the um, the, the plunge. Um, and then I think ne- the new edition came out and I knew it was going to tempt me. And I think it was the end of November, I might have sent you a message saying, I'm going to go for it. Help me with some lists for for Survivors of Lake Town. And I put myself into a, an event in, in January, um, rushed to get that stuff painted just after Christmas. And, and that's it now. This year, I've probably done more Lord of the Rings gaming than I have any other system, including the the supposed main one that I do a podcast for. I think we're about the same vintage, actually, because that's very similar to my journey. I remember as a kid picking up HeroQuest and as a university student picking up the first edition of the game. So I think we're pretty close together there. But unlike you, I didn't really stop. Um, I would have kept playing from about uh, 03 or 04 onwards. I, I did the hide it as well. I picked it up when I was at uni, painted some models, didn't really play many games, and then it really took off as well. So interesting journey. Yeah, I waited till I'd um, snared my wife, um, and then sort of snuck the, the hobby back into uh, <laughs> into a chat one day, and found out that she didn't really mind. Um, I think for for some reason in my insecure twenties, I decided that uh, there was no way I was going to find the love of my life if I played with toy soldiers, which was I kind of regret a little bit now. I missed, I regret the missed years, but um, yeah, definitely back with a vengeance since then, and it's a lot healthier than the than the, the the partying i did in my 20s I probably <laughs> drunk too many beers and it's a lot healthier now to drink a few less beers and maybe spend some of that money in uh in a, in a, in a pursuit that i can sit indoors and the wife knows where i am so it's uh it's it keeps me out of trouble yeah it's very good with that isn't it with when we babysitting kids at home and they they have to be asleep and the wife's gone out or something like that someone has to be at home it's a really good hobby for that so lots of painting yeah i love it my wife will say I need to go. Do you mind if I go to the cinema tonight? And I'm like, no, it's fine. You go for it because I know that'll be guilt-free hobby. Well, I'll say that I've got a seven-week-old baby at the moment, so things are temporarily um, a little bit more difficult in the evenings than they have been in the previous few years. But my my four-year-old's generally in bed, and I can get stuff done. So a few more months and hobby, and we'll be back to uh, most evenings if I want it to be. Fantastic. Now, what armies are you have you completed so far, and are you playing with, or if it's just the models, even? Well, I've um, I started with Survivors of Lake Town, um, so I, I bought lots of. As I said, I bought stuff before and had sort of false starts in the system and never actually played any games. And uh, when I decided I was definitely going to do it, I looked at the model ranges and, I, and I've been I've been used to a lot of Forge World Heresy models, so it's really high end stuff. And some of the sculpts were, you know, as we know in, in Lord of the Rings, are a little bit on the aging side. And I wanted to start with something with the sculpts are a little bit newer. Um, and while the survivors of Lake Town weren't exactly sort of not much Forge World in there, I thought, well, I'll start with something that with sculpts I hadn't owned before or seen too much. So I wanted to start with something a little bit different. Um, and as of ooh, when was it? Sunday, I 
painted the faction, so I finished everything now. So I um, finished off with Bard's family and a militia captain at the weekend, but I, I see it now. I think I posted stuff up last night on on GBHL and things, but that's that's them done. Um, and I've just got a load of more stuff lined up. I've got my battle company sitting, staring at me, um, primed and ready to go. I've got an army of the dead going to go as a legendary legion just because of the three hunter models. I had the I had the dead from the starter box, and I probably wasn't going to do anything with them. And then the, the three hunter set came out, and Gondor War came out, and it was like, well, we'd probably be fairly easy to paint those with the airbrush fairly quickly. So um, they're on the list. Um, I want to do them a random list because I, just because I want to have have an evil army as well. And you get so much in the starter, you just need to add a few characters and you're away. So that's probably next up after the. Uh, Return of the King Legion, and then I'm going to spend a little bit more time doing some Minas Tirith, probably in the towards the end of the year. That's going to be more of a sort of a long term, um, slow paint job. But yeah, loads lined up, and I will probably do even more. And then the stuff that was announced at the at Fest, I'll probably be picking up some Hobbits. As well. <laughs> <laughs> it's really tempting. I, I, I mean, I, I play Heresy, and I've got two armies in Heresy, and I won't bother you know bore listeners with going into details about it. And I'm fairly comfortable with what I've got. And I, and I don't feel like I need to come do every faction. And it was the same when I played Fantasy. I had a couple of factions. But because I love Lord of the Rings so much, it is my biggest nerd passion more than anything else, more than Star Wars, more than all the other things that I might like to read. I, I can see myself doing, you know, 60, 70% of it. I just want to do, well, I'll do that one day. I'll do that one day rather than, well, I won't do that because I've got my faction. I don't feel like I need to pick a faction. And the Legendary Legions seem to give you a really nice way of doing doing factions you maybe wouldn't have done because you can just kind of going to build that list a bit you know i'm new to the game but the hobbit army seem a little bit more contained and the, the lord of the rings armies are a lot bigger they've been around longer and i'm looking at those legions and thinking well you know i will do this list i will do that list. so i will be doing loads i've got loads lined up and um things will be subject to change as new things come out and tempt me i'm sure <laughs> Yeah, I agree with that. The Legendary Legions are a really good way to start a collection, and that Army of the Dead with the Return of the King, um, Aragorn, and Legolas and Gimli is such a good list and so much fun to play with and so much fun to paint that I think I think everyone wants to do that one at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably play style wouldn't be something I'd normally go for, but partly because I can do it really quickly. You know, I, I'll, I will... I'll airbrush those those dead and have them all done bar the basing probably in like four or five hours. And then I can spend the time painting the, the three or four characters. So it will be a relatively quick job. Some of that comes from what I do for a living. I paint for a living. I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute. But I, I kind of like to do things in, in, in manageable chunks. I don't, you know, I don't like too many projects that go on for too, too long. I think the only one that will, when I do the Moranans, it will, again, it will be all right. How can I do this in a relatively short period of time so I can have a, a nice tabletop, but decent standard tabletop, evil army that i can turn out if i need one that i can maybe tempt friends that don't play the system into playing by saying well i've got this do you want to give it a go kind of thing so yeah i <laughs> it's definitely an easy one to 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 get people playing and what games are you playing at the moment have you done mostly points match games at events or are you playing in a club at the moment yeah i'm still very few games into the system um i played two games before i played the event in january and then did um four four rounds in one day as a six hundred point event. I did four rounds in one day there. So um, my 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 third, fourth, fifth, and sixth games were at an event. And then since then, it's just been club games. Um, they've generally been six or seven hundred points. Um, not tried back battle companies yet. I want to get my battle company painted. There's going to be a local local league for that starting in June. So I'm going to see if I can get myself playing with that. And I'm kind of tall at the moment because my local or the local guys are really into battle companies, and I can see that being the summer. 
but because I'm so new to the main game, I'm just as you know pumped to, to go out and, and play some of the match play stuff. I do want to do scenarios, but that requires a collection of painted models, I suppose. So that's uh, that will come into the form more as I paint and, and collect more stuff. Um, I'm probably naturally more of a narrative gamer than I am a, a competitive gamer, but um, it sort of naturally fall into the, the the sort of the set scenarios at the moment, just because it seems an easy way to 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 I don't know message someone on a club board and say right, can we have a game? Is this many points? And you, it gives you that kind of basic social contract there don't you? you don't have to talk about it too much about what you're going to do it doesn't take too much planning that's very true i've actually just um in the background just before this been organizing a game in a similar way and it was as simple as just going uh what size are we playing a thousand okay what are you taking and he said white council and for me it's just like, okay cool i'll take a good dull gold or list and away we go and it's so much yeah, easier than it works really well scenario. yeah I, I, I've missed that a little bit. I mean, for those who don't know the Heresy community, it's it's very heavily narrative based. Or mo- nearly all the events are narrative focused. You don't have prizes for people coming first. People start to win games with toy soldiers. <laughs> you know, you'll always get the people who like to win games more than than others. You always get the people that are more focused on the painting and hobby. Gamers are gamers, like I was saying earlier. But it it doesn't miss that, and it doesn't always. Um, Heresy doesn't always work very well as a pickup game for a club because there's a lot more kind of to make the games work nicely. You need to be a little bit more. You need to talk to each other a little bit more about um, how it's going to balance, how it's going to work. Um, but you know, like you say, with with, with uh, I've never known a game as sort of well balanced out of the book um, as, as as Lord of the Rings. To be honest with you, and I've played a lot of game systems and maybe even include uh, War Machine in that. And that's a game that's very much designed for balance and competition. So. It, it works really well like that. And because of the, the, the fantastic background in books and films, you've got all the narrative there you, that, you, that you want. So you just need your imagination or, or the, all the written scenarios to sort of take it in a completely different direction. I agree with that statement as well. The balance is, is really good. So you can play pretty much any style you want. And I'm absolutely narrative, which is what they call it now. I've always been scenario gamer, but happy to play any other format because it's just always so... You, you know you can have a good game barring every once in a while a, a really one-sided one. But most of the time you can play a good fair game with anything in the system and it's good fun. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, I, I'm trying to get more and more the, the, the non-local um, SPG players to, to pick it up because I think one, it's one of those systems. It's, it's quite elegant. It's quite simple. It's basic form. And it's very easy to break down into a simple game as well. So I'm trying to get people to play it because it's one of those games that when you play you kind of think, oh, I like the way that works. It just just to get, sort of put a smile on your face. And I'll, I'll compare it to War Machine again, but that War Machine had a very simple, basic dice system. And it's got, a, it's got some similarities with that in the, in the fact that it's not a bloated, old-fashioned sort of style of, of game system like, like we use in Heresy. And that's not to bag on it. He uses the old 7th edition 40K rules, wouldn't I? And I didn't play 40K before, and that is really, really it looks it looks old and bloated now compared to the sort of the modern game design that you see with AOS and the, the new modern 40K and things like that. So um, SPG, for, for, as far as GW is concerned, it feels like SPG was the forerunner of that newer style of, of, of gaming. And, and I can see me getting my, my little lad playing it in a couple of years. He's four now. Any game that you can break down to a post dice effectively, you can strip down to something that's really, really basic and, and you know, and, and add the layers as you need it to add the complexity. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. So my five-year-old has been eyeing them off and we play a little pseudo <laughs> game as well on a little board and basically it's just highest dice wins and then we, we take them off. But he's almost there, so yeah. it's not going to be too long. But it works really well. You, you know, you can you can add the you, you, highest dice wins, then you add in the stat line. So there's a little bit of basic math there as well, which is educational. 
you can leave all your heroics and things off for, for, for a few years if you need to. I think it's, I think I'm looking at Star Wars Legion as well as a kind of a game that will help get get a young a young person in because it's written there on the dice who wins effectively. So, but very very similar in that style as well that you're relying very much on just the, what you can see on the dice rather than too many tables to to, to complicate it. Now, Stu, I've got you on because you are the lead painter at Miniature Realm Studios, the only painter, I believe, as well. Is that right? The only, yeah. Why did I add the studio on? It's on too many printed things now, so it'll stay. But yes, yeah, I'm a uh, (laughs) future proofing for all the staff I might have. Well, I'll get the year to get the little lad working as a part time job. Yeah, I've been a commissioned painter for for a few years now. It's a good line of work. It's much better than what I used to do. Um, And, um, yeah, it's 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 always been the biggest part of my hobby, painting and modelling, and then to be able to do it as a as a as a job is a bit of a bit of a luxury in many ways. Doesn't mean I don't get to paint my own models as much as as much as I might like to, but it's more to do with just life gaining in the way rather than um, rather than the job, so to speak. But um, it's always linked in very well with the hobby. It works and looks links in well with the, the podcast I do. Um, so I do a lot of a lot of work. Like I pick up a lot of clients through that as well. It's always good advertising. It's um. The best job I've ever had, that's for sure. Get to sit at home and listen to podcasts and music and watch films while I'm while I'm painting toy soldiers. Can't complain. Oh wow. Yeah, it does sound good like that. I've never really wanted to take the dip. I've been asked a few times to do commissions and I'm in a line of work. I I'm a teacher, so I tend to do a lot of work at home and a lot of work extra hours. So committing to anything outside that is really tough. Yeah, I can imagine. Imagine if you're anything like the teachers over here, they render planning and marking and things in the evenings and uh Working days are ridiculously long, so I can imagine how you wouldn't have, have time, so to speak, especially with families and things as well. Yeah, we've got to do that as well. Uh, so <laughs> painting is a job. How do you keep up the motivation to do this? I know that like, I don't have to paint all the time, so sometimes if it's a night where I was going to paint and I don't, not a big issue at all. But for you, it's your livelihood. So how do you keep up that motivation to keep going? Um, on a boring level, it's my, my business and my job. So I have to, you know, if I don't, until I, I don't get paid till I complete a job. So, um, it's, it's, there's that kind of boring real life element to it. I'm lucky enough that it's within dedicated time. Um, like, so I go to work at a set time, like, like I would, if I was leaving the house to go to work. Um, so that, that helps as well. I mean, I, before I, before we had a first child, I worked as a retail manager and I worked in HR and things. So I was very much out of the house and I wouldn't have time to do it then i wouldn't have time to do it in the evening so i can't imagine like you doing a job like you do and doing it but uh, my wife went back to work and um my, my little lad went to nursery for part-time to start with and then rather than me going back to work full-time um I, I could earn money and it's much more flexible for me to do it while i was at nursery so that's how it kind of evolved from that really my wife's on maternity at the moment so i'm i'm doing monday to friday pretty much nine to five sitting in the office in my house which is roll out of bed have some breakfast and um and, and get to work so it's it's quite easy to motivate myself in that sense occasionally like any work you you know you might get behind or you something changes or a little lad's ill or something or i can't work and i'll have to find some time in the evening but that's just the same as the same as my job before in that sense so it's it's not too bad it the motivation problems comes with doing my own stuff and occasionally i'll sit down at the desk and i've got an unfinished work project there but it's my time and I'll quite often go, well, I haven't finished that. And I feel like I, I, I migrate to work. So that's the only time it, it really kind of clashes with, with my personal hobby. So I have to sort of tell myself off and say, right now you're having this amount of that, this amount of hours today. And I do it then. This year I've made a goal for, for a new year's resolution to try and stay on a single project until completion. 
and it's partially driving me crazy and partially the best thing I've ever done because I've managed to finish off my Muma kill. I've managed to fill off my Rangers for Faramir. I've just done my Army of the Dead. I've got a board game done as well. And they're actually done to completion. And sometimes it's it like it's just boring and, and painful, but to get through it's really good. Is that what you do as well with projects? Stay on the same task until it's complete or do you jump around? No, I always do it. always do that. And it's just partly an OCD thing. I um, <laughs> this isn't diagnosed OCD and I'm not, not going to make light of anyone that has OCD, but I I can't start another project in terms of painting. I might build something just because sometimes you can be a situation where you can get some building done, but you can't paint. But I can't really start another project until I've finished painting one to completion. It's uh, my, my brain won't let me do it. And I don't like to go back and, and repeat pro- stages either. So when I did the, I took 48 militia for my um, Survivors of Lake Town, I couldn't do them in batches or two or three. And I know for most people, that's the sensible way of painting to stop, them going, stop themselves going crazy. But I knew, like, how many do I want? I'm, I'm going to do 48. If I need any more, I'll have to argue with myself at a later date because I won't want to go back and repaint something. So I've done 48 all in one go, use the airbrush a lot. And did them did them in big batches, so I did all of one stage and go back and do an all of another because I hate repeating stages on 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 models. Um, once you've already moved past that stage, if that makes sense. So yeah, I'm very very disciplined with it. I say this color goes down. We're going to do all of this color today. I'm going to lay down all of this color, even though it takes me eight hours. Of course, all those models, I'm going to do that and then I'll move on. And I'll... So it helps me with my personal products because I do them the same way as I do my work. It's just efficiency, time efficiency. When you do small batches. It keeps you a bit saner, but it does take longer, especially if you're using the airbrush and you're mixed in paint. So you, you know, any any half an hour, I say, even here and there is a um, better, better hourly rate for my business. So I have to look at it that way. That, that is a pretty good piece of advice for there as well, with the, the, the batch painting. I personally have a lot of trouble with that because of the motivation and because I've only got maybe 45 minutes or an hour or something in shifts to paint. So I want to get something done if I can. But your, your way is yeah. definitely more efficient. It's efficient, but it's not something I, I'd always I always say when I talk about it as a big caveat to it. Paint the way that works for you. It's the same way of it's about any kind of happiness and your mental happiness. Paint the way that you're happy. Don't try and do something another way. So paint the way that will, that's going to motivate you to keep painting. So if the thought of painting forty eight militia in one go will make you not do it, which is probably the case with most normal people, um, don't do it that way. Do it the way that works best for you. Um, and you know it's the same with with a lot of painting whether it's brands of paint you choose and equipment that you use you you try other try things definitely but do things the way that's most efficient and, and makes you most happy and most likely to paint some people paint purely because they need to paint models to get them on the table some people love all every part of the process we're all different with it yeah very true now i for a lake town militia it'll probably take me anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour and a half to paint a model what sort of rate are you looking yeah. at for for one of those <laughs> i think i've knocked out the, the 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 whole of the 48 plus what did i do with it um i think i did bard and one of the characters i can't remember i, I did them over a, a week probably about 30 35 hours um and that was by doing the, the big batch and then since then i've kind of gone back and, and spent two to three hours on each character uh the last ones i did was sunday i was supposed to go to warhammer fest didn't make it up there in the end, but I had about six hours and I, um, oh, six or eight hours, probably about eight hours. And I did, I, I did, um, the Bard family and the militia captain. I got them all finished pretty much. So yeah, it's a couple of hours, two to three hours of character. And then the other, the other dudes were probably less than an hour on, on average, really. There were a lot, you know, not less, not less highlights and things on there. 
Oh, it sounds like you're going for about half an hour or so for the militia, which is an impressive rate. Yeah. I mean, if I sat down and just painted one, it might take me an hour. But as I said, by using the methods that I do, kind of like, well, this colour's in the airbrush. This and I, and I do a lot through the airbrush. I do an awful lot through the airbrush, even on, on, on miniatures like militia, when you think, well, what could you possibly do for the airbrush? I look at, I've grouped them up into sort of, um, into groups of colours. So these are going to be mainly blue, these are going to be mainly brown, and um, tried to lay as much down as I possibly could with the airbrush to save time, including basic highlights and things. And then I've gone back and then painted in the small areas with the, with the hairy brush, so to speak, uh, and built it up from there. Anything I can do that kind of cuts down the, the project time, especially on the, the rank and file and the more boring miniatures. Perfect. Now that's a good segue to the, the main segment of the, the episode, which is all going to be about the airbrush. I've been a little bit uh, selfish for this one. I've just got a, an airbrush. It's actually my brother's and I've started using it. It had some excellent results, but I'm an absolute beginner and really want to know a bit more about it. So I've got you on to have a chat with our listeners about the airbrush. We might have a bit of a break first and then we'll come back with our airbrush chat. We're back with airbrushing for Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, Middle Earth miniatures. First, Stu, can you tell me what are the advantages of an airbrush over just pure brush painting? Well, I've already covered when we were talking earlier. I mean, about time saving is one of the one of the major things. Definitely saves an awful lot of time. When I started using the airbrushing, it was for mainly for doing tanks and things like that. I think that's a lot. That's a, a sort of an area that a lot of people fall into is that well, I can't really use it on these smaller models. So, you know, clearly that needs to be this color and that needs to be that color. I'm never going to hit that with an airbrush. Um, so you kind of stick with the bigger things. I think a lot of people pick one up and they may go, well, I'll do some priming with it, you know, because from the days that it's too hot or too cold outside, um, you build from there. But once you get used to the airbrush more and more, you get more control. Um, you start seeing, well, I can save time by doing this or doing that. Um, so time's the first thing. Um, and then moving on from that, just the ability to get sort of basic blend down much quicker. So you, you're starting to add highlights and things, which is so much quicker and easier and smoother in terms of a finish that you're gonna you're gonna get with a with a the hairy brush as well. So you're not having to spend so much time glazing or wet blending or two brush blending or any of the other techniques you may use. So that, for me, those are the the, the, the two major areas. Um, so, so building, I like to build a lot of contrast into my painting, and a lot of that contrast is built in through through where I leave shadow with the airbrushing. A lot of listeners may even be aware of, sort of zenithal highlighting. So you, you start with, I nearly always base uh, on prime black, um, and then I will do a zenithal highlight from the almost from the top of the miniature with a, with a white. It's just like where the, the light would shine and cast a shadow underneath underneath the miniature. Now, sometimes I won't do any more than 
anymore with that zenithal highlight. You can, can then paint very thin over the top and let the color, let the white um, that you've painted on your miniature come through to give you a natural highlight. Sometimes I will completely airbrush or paint over that, but it sort of gives me a, like a, a, a sketch in the first place so I can see where the, the details of the miniature are. So it just depends on what finish I want. But um, I will also use a similar technique when I'm painting colors with the airbrush. If I'm going to use an example of some of the Lake Town Militia I've done, if you take one of the guys wearing blue, I, I prime them black. I did the Zenithal Hollow with the white, so I knew I was going to be aiming with the airbrush. But when I put down those initial blue stages with the airbrush, I, I made sure that I left some of the shadow in. And again, that's by pointing the airbrush down sort of from where the light would shine on the miniature. So I'm naturally leaving some of the darker areas. So I'm not painting a two thin coats, flat color all over, completely blocking out what's already there. I'm leaving some of that natural shadow. Um, and then I'll go in and do a highlight and that would be a painting a slightly smaller area again. So I'm hitting certain areas. So I'm leaving like leaving the light and things on there. So what I, what I end up with is um, a base color, which is um, has changes in gradient, has lighting on there already. And then by the time I go back and then fill in the details and, and, and touch it up with, with a hairy brush, you, you get a, a much nicer, naturally lit model with, with contrast already built in. So that for me, they're the, the biggest advantages. That's what I found as well so far. I initially used the airbrush on my troll brute because the mm-hmm. big area trolls, you want to want to try and get the, the smooth gradient for the skin and flesh, and it takes forever to do it by layers. So I had to go with the airbrush at those and, and actually got really good results straight away. And I probably didn't do it particularly well, but the, the result was fantastic. So I've found all my trolls with that. I've... Uh, base coated my smell with the airbrush and I've only recently started my army the dead I tried to get the the gradients going with the brush and it wasn't going too well so I've got I, I hit it with a, essentially a gray blue with the airbrush tried to do some highlights on it was clearly not accurate enough then decided to re-highlight it by hand and I've actually started um, putting the uh, what is it the, the nun oil the uh, the ink from games workshop or wash from games workshop what is it it's a shade and put yes, that in shame, the airbrush, yeah. and it's sort of masking areas. So I was able to mask all the bottom of my army, the dead, with this uh, interesting black with some other colors mixed into it, and it's really just sort of set them off. So that's my extent with the airbrush. Have you used any other models in the the Lord of the Rings range with the airbrush, or is there any ones you think would be prime candidates for it, or is it just everyone? I think you think you can generally use it for for, for everything. Um, the the bigger they, the bigger the model is. That it's definitely easier and when they're as big as smaug or something I, I can't imagine now painting something that big without it um the, the thought of, of of doing that whole model with just with a regular brush would <laughs> just I, I honestly I've, I've used it so long now it would, it's almost as alien to me probably as people that haven't used an airbrush thinking about painting a, a an inventory model there's always a way to do something some models less than others it might be as simple as uh, you could get the green down on a cloak on that wood elf, and that's it, really. Um, I've got a bit of got a bit of shadow, a bit of shade in there, and the rest I'm going to have to go in um, with a hairy brush. So I always look at what's the main color going to be on a model. So what's the pr- if there a predominant color that covers maybe sixty or seventy percent of the model? If there is, can I use the airbrush to save myself some time to build it up there? Um, but things like trolls, absolutely skins, skins great to build up. You can build much smoother blends and layers with your airbrush, and then go back in afterwards with glazing and ink so you you're talking about using the non oil shade um i tend to i use those a lot i don't always use them for the airbrush um well i i've got something called um so i use scale 75 paints a lot and they've got a really good range of inks mm-hmm. and i find that slightly thinning ink 
goes a little bit better through the airbrush to to the shades because the shades are designed to sort of pull and, and, and add shade in that way where the ink you have a little bit more control um very similar though very very similar um and i've gone back in when i needed a little bit of shade after i've done the airbrushing sometimes you can kind of almost over highlight with it um just using a little bit of airbrush ink through the uh, ink through the airbrush can give you a, a decent shade in the kind of the undersides and you can almost blend where that shadow is up into the higher areas um it's very hard to describe on, on an audio format but um it sounds like you're already playing around with the the areas that you'll you'll move on and and, and benefit from you're a very very good painter as it is i mean your stuff's really really nice so the the base level you have an understanding of painting anyway i think once you've once you've got the, your head around using the airbrush and the control and things i imagine you'll go to leaps and bounds you never know you might be a stage when you're you're a bit like me and you sense well why would i not use the airbrush for for, for that yeah i hope to get to that stage i'm, I'm definitely not there yet because i've got a few issues that i'm definitely going to ask you about them because i'm a largely a self-taught painter and i've been described as having my own style so i tend to go for very rough brushstroke style and try to try to build up extreme contrast that way and uh, the airbrush uh-huh. has been totally different because it gets much more smooth gradient than i'm used to i'm used to a, a lot more almost a rough gradient with more obvious highlights. So it's a different different technique, And but I'm having some issues with the technical side of it. So if you don't mind, can I start picking your brains, Stu? Fire away. I'm sure, you know, hopefully I can help you. Otherwise, it'll... But uh, yeah, fire away, I and mean, hopefully it'll be stuff that's useful to other people as well. Okay, now I'm going to probably embarrass myself. So I'll explain what I'm doing at the moment. I've got in my garage, the temperature I airbrush at is pretty consistent. So it's usually somewhere between 10 and... 20 degrees celsius when i'm airbrushing so hopefully that's not too bad i um, i just have a, basically a big cardboard box at the side that i spray into and i've got a, a little desk set up that i i hold the models in one of the little model holders and i get the the brush and i'll just spray at it and hope it all works is that a good setup or is there something i'm doing wrong no it's absolutely at a basic level it's absolutely fine i don't use a tractor booth um and i'm inside you i think you you, you, there's a lot of kit out there. You, you, you should be wearing a mask for safety rules, and that sounds really, I don't always, but you should be wearing a mask because you're only breathing that stuff in. Aside from that, you do, as long as you're in a ventilated enough area, you're fine. It's all about how messy you are as an individual. As you get to using your airbrush, your control's better. You'll find that you're able to hit the size of, you know, airbrush something the size of a face. You know, I'm not talking about, some people can do eyes and all sorts, but I'm not talking about myself in that level, but you can you can definitely hit a very small area, um, and when you're doing that, you're not overspraying. So overspray is where your the, the, the paint that's not hitting your target area is landing on something behind. So as you get more and more control, um, that overspray will become less and less. And I will just airbrush directly onto my desk now if it's uh, just a small bit here or there. If I'm doing a large large number of models or a tank or something, and then I may well put up um, some protection around it or a little box or something or other like that. So. What you're doing sounds absolutely fine. The temperature doesn't sound too bad for you either. I know that you're in slightly warmer climes than us, so you you may well struggle more than um, than, than than I do here most of the year. So you know that, those kind of temperatures aren't too bad at all. Um, once you start getting above um, sort of 25 or so, then you sometimes hear a dry tip and things drying in the air. But you know, I, th- I think for, the, for for starting, what you're doing is absolutely fine. And then you just need to kind of realise, well, actually, I, I'd want to improve this one. So this or by that buy what what suits you so what what's what's your airbrush setup like now what brush have you got? i've got um i'm not entirely sure it's it's as i said it's my brother's one and he uses it um for spraying motorbikes and rc cars and so every once in a while he'll use it and then just give me the rest of the year it's an iwata um something 
it seems a pretty decent one. I think it's a, a reasonable quality brush. And I've got a compressor that he bought me as well. So I don't actually know the specs on it. But I think it's a, a pretty much a custom one for airbrush. It's got a little um, air trap in it. And I've got another one on my hose. So I've got two air traps for some reason. Uh, whatever they're called. That's, it sounds good, Then It sounds like you've got more than, than the sort of base level that a lot of people start with. I want, I want to do great airbrushes without knowing which model it is. I couldn't, you know, couldn't comment too much, but it sounds like you've got maybe a higher entry point than, than some people start with. It's very easy to go out on eBay or Amazon and, and spend, I only know sterling, but you can spend about £80 and you can get yourself an airbrusher and, and a, a, an airbrush compressor and a couple of sort of Chinese airbrushes. And they're fine to start with. I think a lot of people find very, very shortly afterwards they want to pick up a slightly better brush. It gives them a slightly better control. They all have an action based on, um, on on when you you pull down on the needle, and the, the better quality ones they just tend to be smoother. It's a bit like anything in life. If you're driving a a clapped out old car, um, you'll find that when you upgrade to something new, it drives a bit smoother and a little bit nicer. But it's about getting the the balance between being sensible with the amount of money you invest um, and how much you're going to use it. But do be aware, anyone new out there that's picked up a cheap a cheap airbrush and it thinks, oh, this is a bit different. Sometimes you're spending a little bit more can improve the experience enough that might make a difference between you giving up or giving up on it altogether or, or carrying on um i started with a cheap chinese brush it was fine for tanks and things like that but i couldn't do what i do now with it then i moved on to i use harder and steamback brushes now and i had something called uh, harder and steamback ultra two-in-one it's really affordable at the moment so if people are looking at a good beginner brush a lot of people automatically go to um the neo or something like that which is about sort of 50 pounds um the iwater ultra sorry the um hns ultra two-in-one comes with a uh, a, a point two and a, and a point um, four needle so you've got you only nearly need the point four most of the time so you can swap the needle sizes and it's about 65 pounds now it's really well made workhorse brush and i still use it now for a lot of sort of baser base works um and then my main brush is um is a, a infinity cr2 plus and two one and they're sort of over 200 quid which i wouldn't recommend anyone starts with the first brush but again that feels like i've i've hopped in my ferrari rather than uh, <laughs> potting around in a, in a in a little sort of hatchback or something there's a there's a big difference and most of that goes down to the control you have over this the amount of paint and air that you're pushing through the airbrush without getting too technical about it but that kind of fin- finesse that you get with a slightly more, more expensive brush makes definitely makes things easier but start with a child anyone out there thinking about what to get just start with one of those sets you see on ebay all the time cheap cheap airbrush cheap compressor and give it a go if you can afford a compressor with a tank um go for one of those because the motor is not constantly running it's a little bit quieter so the air fills the tank and then it only kicks back in when your tank's empty but it sounds like yours would be quite good if you've got two two outputs on it you can run two airbrushes off the same thing it sounds like it's got you've got a fairly good setup as it is for a starter anyway yeah i was lucky enough that my family was looking for gifts to get me and it's pretty much the only thing for the hobby i don't have so hit the jackpot there <laughs> you certainly did certainly did um so what else so so what sort of what's your early experiences been like how you found the control and things? what sort of what have you struggled with what have you knowing how often to clean the brush so what happens is um like i'm avoiding clogs pretty easy basically by um doing little short sprays at times when i feel it's like trying to trying to play up a little bit and i i tend to do a pretty deep clean when i finish a color which i'm probably overdoing at the moment i'm not sure how much i need to do um what do you do for for cleaning of your brush just say you're going between colors and also at the end of your session how much how rigorous are you do you take the whole thing apart and soak it all or 
I I don't too much. Um, I do take it apart, um, and I often take it apart during during painting as well. So in between colours, it depends how long I've been painting a particular colour, and it depends which colours I've been painting. So some will be a lot more chalky. So your your anyone that's ever opened a pot of um, GW white paint will know how chalky that can get. And there are better brands for that, but different paints um, have different levels of pigment in, and they behave very differently. So I will I kind of keep an eye on how it's flowing. If it's if I've done a very very short job, so maybe two or three minutes, and and it's flowing through really well, I might just put a bit of water and a little bit of cleaner through it, and that's it. And I'll move on to the next paint. If we've been painting for a long time and do done blue on fifty models or something. Um, it may well get pretty jammed up by then, so I'll, wanna, I'll be doing mini cleans, running a bit of water and a bit of cleaner through, throughout, and then afterwards I might just remove the needle, wipe it down, take the tip off, um, and just make sure I get in there, and make sure there's nothing stuck. Now, some painters will will tell you that you know if you if you run enough cleaner through it and things, you shouldn't need to take your tip off during painting and things. So people will tell you lots of different stuff. So it depends on your depends on your equipment and how it's working for you really and that's a bit it's a bit of a cop out but it's not designed to be if it's clogging up every few minutes then you either need to you need to change how your thickness of your paint you need to look at the psi and your pressure on your uh, compressor um and maybe you need to look at how often you're cleaning so just get used to how you're using it and how it works for you i change the psi on my compressor depending on the paint depending on what i want to do i am um, i probably set i set it as about 20 psi as a default but that's just a starting point, and I will. I'm happy to adjust it during during painting. So I'll start on something. I think that's not right. Is the paint the right you know, viscosity? Yeah, I think it is. Well, let's give it a little bit more, a little bit less on the psi. See how it behaves. Brilliant. That's working better. Great. So don't be don't be frightened to to try and adjust it. Um, same way as you would with paint on a palette. You might add some more water, add some more paint, um, use a different size hairy brush, and it's the same with an airbrush for me. You just you want to adjust. Just it slightly and make sure that, that, that your combination of, of things that are right for the effect you're trying to achieve. Well, on PSI, because that's another question I had, 20 is about similar to what I do as well, or maybe up to, to 25 for standard. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I adjust up, say, to 30 or, or even higher, I don't know how high you can go, what, what's it doing to the paint? It's obviously like shooting like faster or harder, but what's, what's the effect on the, the actual paint? Science-wise, I couldn't couldn't tell you. It's going to affect the molecules' pressure, so you're putting a lot more oomph behind the the air. So you've got your paint in your cup that's been forced out by the the compressed air. So all you're doing is really is is up in the pressure, which means you're forcing it out quicker. So if you've got a thin type paint, you might you might find that it starts kind of coming out too much. You might splurge. You might it might start sort of snaking or spidering. If it's thicker, you'll get more through if you turn the start the pressure up, but Again, I find it's a, it's it's a really really a balance between you'd get more control with lower pressure, not ridiculously low, not not sort of two or three psi, but the the the, the lower the psi you can go and it to do the job you need, you've probably got control. There's less danger that you press down too hard on that trigger that you'll do a kind of spray can job and and squirt. We often find when people first pick up the airbrush, it's kind of like all or nothing. It's like straight down, heavy, 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 um, and then it, and you get paint everywhere. It's a bit like learning to drive. So if uh, I don't know if you got are you all on automatics over there. Yeah, we we you are drive. on both. So there's, a, there's both. most of the people are on automatics, but there's a definitely a manual culture as well. There's it's probably more manual cars in the UK still than automatics. I know it's changing, especially the the sort of the bigger cars tend to be automatic. But you all over here, if you learn in a in a, in a automatic, you can only drive automatic. So everyone tends to learn stick, as Americans would call it. So you, you learn, it's it's a bit like clutch control. Um, you're going to use your airbrush and when you first learn to drive it 
that's the hardest bit, making sure that you're smooth and you're, you know, you're not kangaroo your car around and that your gear changes are smooth and you're able to pull away. And, and learning your airbrush is a little bit of that and easier. You know, you pick it up quicker. But learning that, learning that kind of balance between um, how you use the trigger. So when you, when you push the, when you push the, the trigger down, you're pulling it back as well. So you're increasing the amount of air and you're increasing the amount of paint. So you just got to play around with that and get yourself at a nice level where you, when you've got control. So if you're new to airbrushing, it's great to just sit there with some paper and draw some lines and try and sign your name and try and make that line as thin as possible and get used to what happens when you pull back harder and faster. Um, and it's, it's definitely better doing that for a little while than just sort of going straight to, uh, straight to your models. So it's, it, there's no right or wrong answer there. You've just got to kind of, get used to that how your brain tells your finger what to do and how that works with the airbrush you have and how and how sensitive your airbrush is oh perfect so in general though if i'm going for like thin lines and i want to just do a really thin shadow in in a crevice or something like that i want a low psi if possible yeah i would say lower and and the thinner the paint you can have as well that 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 covers your the more thin layers you can do that you still got control you don't want it so thin that you lose control and you're basically kind of chucking splats of water on um, but you you want to you know the more you'll have more control with it being a, a lower psi and the and the paint and we say that probably at the right you know people say how much do you thin it well you thin it thin it to the right amount and that's the same with a with a with a regular paint with a hairy brush as it is with an airbrush there's no you know people talk about the consistency of milk and all these things well yeah that's absolutely perfect for, for certain jobs but it's not for everything else if you're trying to put a base coat down on something you want the right that it's going to cover it within one or two goes you don't want to be um you don't want to be there doing your tenth coat, and you can still see the uh, the prime through it, unless that's the 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 effect you're going for. So, don't be frightened to play around with it, really. But yeah, the more power you put in there, the less control you're going to have. It's going to be, if anyone's ever tried to do a a gentle spray with a with a rattle can, you can't really do it. You you know you can pretty much full on or stop. Um, it's the same with an airbrush once you whack that psi up. Do you ever like adjust the distance away from the the model that you are with the brush, or are you a consistent? distance from from the model oh no you, you wouldn't be changing all the time you're shooting a cone aren't you and of paint which is only going to get wider and wider far your away so if you want to if you want to say shade a small area or put a color in a small area you want to be able to get as close as you can without it being so close that it's spraying back everywhere and then when you're maybe doing a highlight or something you might want to just dust the edge of it so you might, might be moving the model and the airbrush in a way that the combination of the two that you're only hitting a certain area so it's it doesn't doesn't work very well as a, as an audio thing that people visualize that in the head but absolutely a lot of it will come to you naturally once you've been playing with it for a little while but you are you're definitely changing the distance that you're, you're using your airbrush absolutely oh that's good to know as well because like i i do a lot of experiment and i just try and do trial and error until i get the effect i want but i don't necessarily know how it happened so this is good it's sort of putting all the pieces together <laughs> and i just recalled that i actually did my mumma with my airbrush as well and totally forgot so that was one of my success stories. That was really easy to airbrush with all the folds in it and just try to do little outlines in the folds. Absolutely. And you, I don't know if you how you did. I haven't painted a moment. I imagine if I was painting, I'd be starting dark and, and, and talking about almost doing that zenith style of painting where I'm, I'm allowing the paint to come down from where the light is and it'll almost leave those those lines and those those crevices in there as well. And you can always go back by adding inks if they're kind of obliterated. Yeah. But you can almost glaze those things back anyway. But the airbrush, you're going to be able to to aim it in a way that it's going to leave some of those darker areas. And I think that just it speeds up your painting so much. And it gives you a really nice outline. So when you go that brush, then you can go right, accentuate that. I'm going to hide that or add a little bit more shadow back. But um, all of those things that you're talking about, you're not doing anything wrong there because all of those techniques will will suit to do a certain job. So just play around with it and and, and get used to 
what you can do with it and then you'll learn to do more with it and you'll control and that, and that will just naturally grow you've already sounds like you're already doing an awful lot more than maybe i did even the first couple of times that i um, used mine oh, it's, it's no fear from my end i'll just try things until they work until it, until it happens you can always repaint it you can actually get away with repriming if you prime with an airbrush that is rather than uh, you can just go over it again or we've just paint directly over it's such a thin layer if you're careful that um if something's not right you can just carry on if you, I still prime a lot with a rattle can for the base black just because it gives a good level of protection. Um, but the layers you put on with the airbrush afterwards, if it goes wrong, you're really such a thin layer that you'd have to repaint quite a few times before you start obliterating any detail. You know, obviously, if you paint with a hairy brush or something, you're going to have to maybe strip those models before you redo them. If you've gone wrong with the airbrush, it's generally fixable. I never strip my models. I, I just paint over the top of it, and if the detail disappears, I just repaint the detail using highlights and never notice <laughs> I um I don't like stripping models too, but if I ever get anything that you know, I, I I tend to not repaint unless it's with an airbrush. But luckily, it doesn't come up very often. No, I just never make mistakes. That's the way to do it as well. It saves so much time. <laughs> well, there's no. Le- there's no tanks for battle damage. It's usually mistakes of battle damage is a little bit harder when it's skin or something. But uh, with my Mumak, I the ink specifically, or the shade, sorry, it was actually shade. I'm sure there's better products for this. But there was two techniques I did with it. Once I got my color where I wanted to, I wanted to add some depth to the shadow. So there was one where I just did this really thin, I could imagine from the cone from far away where it almost dried on the way and just made like a light glaze over the top of it and a very smooth one. So hitting it with the brown. The other one I did was go really strong and so it could actually just push around the ink. So almost like you had a hairy brush, put the ink on. I was able to do that with the airbrush and sort of guide it along the lines where I wanted to. Is that a normal technique or is that a... Absolutely. Anything you can do, it can be a normal technique. So don't, don't be frightened of those things. So what you're really, all you're doing is adding a filter there, aren't you? The same way as you might add a glaze when you're, when you're painting with a, with, a regular, with a regular brush. You're just changing the, 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 the tone of that paint by adding something else over the top. So yeah, absolutely. If you need to, you want to change the tone, then you've got the right color in there to do it. Um, then do it. Was that what you using? Were you using like the the Citadel shades and using the Nelm oil and things to do that? Yeah, I did it. I've got like this um, catch-all mix that I have, which is a little bit of purple, a little bit of the black, and some of the brown as well, and with some um, yep. some some medium in there to thin it out a bit. So it you can push it around and, and if you go dark on it, it goes quite dark. And as you feather out, it sort of gets a bit of a purple tone. Mm-hmm. Sounds really good. Uh, yeah. You, you've already, you know, you've, you've, you already, you've got a really good idea of paints do and how to use them anyway. So that's, that's, it's cutting out a lot of the learning process for you. It's just how you apply it with the airbrush. And it sounds like you're doing a good job of it. Like I said earlier, I use scale inks quite a lot. Um, there are other inks out there and I thin them down because they're quite strong, but they're quite good to, to put in shadows and add a little bit of depth back. I also use Scale 75 paints to do that as well. They thin very well. Scale 75 paints glaze very well. I've picked them up a few years ago. They're very different. So if you're if you're someone that you're sitting out there and you've used mainly Citadel paints, you will you'll be quite shocked about how different they are. They're ultra matte, as in almost chalky matte, some of the finishes on. You can't sort of put a dollop on your palette and um, paint away the same way as you would with a, with a GW paint. You'll think, well, this is too thick. I can't thin it right. You, you really need to use them in the way that they're designed. They're probably more advanced paints in that sense. But I find that they um, they glaze really well. So when you when you thin them down and you highlight an area, when they dry, they dry a lot lot duller. Um, so you almost gives you a natural highlight. So the way you normally paint, you were talking about your bold. You almost do it's like bold layering, isn't it? So you're kind of yes. building up. At one dark color, then the next, and the next. It's almost um, you see that style a lot in a lot of the military um, 
a sort of historical game with the old layering system. It's really, really great contrast. If you did that same style with the, the scale paints, you'll find just naturally that those those layers would blend together a little bit more just because the way the paint dries. So you paint it on, you think it looks bright, and then when it dries, it just sort of naturally fades in. So if you keep your paints thin enough, and I'll do the same for the airbrush. So I'll know that I can make up a very thin black or a brown or something and just air the airbrushes into an area a bit like a wooden ink. Um, again, that's just come about through, through a couple of years of using the paint now and getting to understand how a particular brown works. And um, I do mix and match my brands a bit. That's probably the major one I use. And I'll, I'll use the when I do non-Northern Ring stuff as well um, because it adds texture. So I mix and match textures. You'll get a finish that's satin. Um, and you'll get a finish that's very matte, and I'll use them on the same model because I might want a cloak to be a different texture to to, to the to an armor or or to flesh or something like that. And it just it, it makes those areas of the model stand out more. Um, so I think you're um, you're on to a winner by the sounds. Yeah, I've got a practice with the scale seventy five. I've had one experience with them at the moment, and I got some purple, and I was painting it on a flat surface for some reason. And it ended up being yeah. probably too thick for my liking, too matte and a bit chalky, as you said. And I got scared yeah. off them immediately. So do I need to thin them more? Is that the deal there? Yeah, I would. I mean, it, it, you, I hear that a lot. There's an AI chat who picked up the flesh set. And I love the Scale 75 flesh set. It really suits the way I paint, which is really, really thin layers, building up layers slowly and then glazing back. It's very much a glazer. Um, and layer paid person's painting sets. If you're trying to do a flat area, um, I, I, I just never really do it with scale anymore because I'll use the airbrush. So if I was doing a flat area with a, that purple, I'd have probably put that base layer down with the airbrush. It will go on really smooth and really nice. And then when you're doing the subsequent layers, it, it seems to work better. But using it to kind of base coat. So if you're going to go back to the GW style, not the new contrast style, but the GW style um, of, of painting where you put down your two thin coats, flat base colours, then you do your shades, then you do your highlights. Then scale is going to be a challenge for you. You you, you want to paint in a different way if you're going to use it. So it works really well for the airbrush. It works really well for, for glazing and layering and highlights and things. But that base level is a little bit harder to, to get right, to get flat. So I don't think you do anything wrong there. I think just the the nature of the paint and using the right tool for the right job, job, so to speak. Yeah, I'll definitely have to practice with that because I've heard such good things and I, I picked them up, was all excited and then clearly just uh, didn't know how to use them and, and then put them back away. I've got lots of different paint brands, so I tend to cycle through them. Some I really like, some I don't. I've been using the Vallejo through the, um, the airbrush, the Vallejo Air, and I've been getting good results <laughs> with them. I'm pretty happy with them. And there's so many military colors as well, which are really good for Lord of the Rings. Yeah, absolutely. They're the, probably the biggest range around, and I use quite a lot. They're probably my second most used range. Um, there's, a, there's a big variance in Vallejo paints in terms of the way they behave. There's some ones out there that don't work for the airbrush or too chalky or something, and some are better than others. Just the same as the GW paints a bit like that. Massive range. You can pretty much get any colour you want if you treat it as a whole range. So you've got your model colour, you've got your model air, you've got your game air, your game colour. You can pretty much put anything for an airbrush if you thin it right. Um, I've got some of their Noctura paints as well. So Noctura are kind of sort of boutique style colour sets, but they're made by Vallejo as well. And there are a couple of flesh sets. So the range is huge and it's just about playing around and finding sort of your favourite colours and the things you're comfortable with. And once you get comfortable using a particular paint, um, you tend to sort of go back to it um, and before you find something new, really. So the scale are great, but you kind of haven't, you know, you want to take them take them on bit by bit. If you want to start with scale, um, start with a, something like the black and white set if you're using an airbrush because they're a really good way of 
of painting black. The colors in there are really good for that, for painting blacks and whites. And get used to how they work and then adding colors for other stuff as you need them. Um, I kind of went set after set after set because I love them so much, but it won't be for everyone. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very curious. You piqued my interest in that. Stu, what, uh, what colors do you use for white? What paint brands? Because I haven't got one that I'm happy with at the moment. There's not one yet that I really like. I tend to, suppose surprise, I tend to use the scale set as a base. Um, but because they're quite translucent, like I was, I was describing earlier, when you layer, they kind of dry a bit darker. If I want a really, really bold finish to the white, I'll often finish it off with a Vallejo. So the, the best example I can give is that recently I did, I did a Death Guard Horus Heresy Army and the client wanted it a bit a little bit brighter than than some of the other finishes. And I, I used the scale 75 colours, so I used them something called um it's called rainy gray i think i started with and then i was using sort of mauve whites and then i'd use their pure white on the top and it looked great and then as it dries it goes a little gray so i wanted a really sort of top finish and i ended up finishing it off just with some um, game air white and that just gave it that really really bright finish if you want a really smooth flat white um the flat white from tamir is amazing it gives you a that's another level of um complication because you need to use their own thinner with it just because of the way it works so it depends on the job so you you're talking about for for, for cloth and things like that more if you're looking at lord of the rings painting is that what you uh, my non-metallic armor i'd use the the very top layer is some white and the vallejo i've used i like the i like the tone of the vallejo but when i try and use it it seems to separate almost into little tiny dots so when i'm doing yeah. a really fine detail it's not giving me the smoothness that i want it's sort of jumps a little bit and it feels like i've got like a low resolution picture yeah yeah i know what you mean um i think it's just matte white's one of the hardest paints to get the right consistency and it's mostly it's about playing with that um i think i'm going to think i don't think there's one white that i've used does all jobs there's not an all-round white and i've already hinted out earlier i won't i won't touch sit white i find it very very chalky and um, very hard to get a nice smooth finish the scale stuff I can make nice and smooth, but it doesn't, you know, like I said, doesn't dry very white, so very bold. So it just kind of mix and matching with those, really. But um, especially for the airbrush, it's probably one of the hardest um, colors to paint. I use Flowaid um, with certain colors through the airbrush. I don't know if you've you've picked any of that up or seen it. Yeah, so I tend to use Flowaid with, well, not with all the paints I use through the airbrush, but um, definitely things that they're a little bit more on the chalk, naturally chalky side. And you can usually tell that just by when you put the paint in your. You your palette or in your your airbrush cup i will use it for most most of the time i do whites um just because they seem to be naturally chalky the, the the amount of pigment in them seems to, to make them a little bit thicker and a little bit harder to get as a smooth smooth finish through so it might be worth just trying a little bit of flow aid and you see if you get a, a smoother finish and it's again it's just that mix of getting you'll you'll get to the point when you you'll know i'm going to use this brand of paint this needs this amount of thinning and that's the viscosity i need and that's the psi i need and that will work fine and it will be different for, for every person with a, their different makeup of brush and um atmospheric temperatures and um, um the the compressor so many different factors that will will have an effect on that and you've just got to sort of fiddle around with the play there, there's often much swearing even though i do this you know every day for a living it'll still be days where i spend half an hour just trying to get the flow right on a certain thing um and other days where it's absolutely fine and it's frustrating so you just got to kind of play around with it until, until it's right oh that's good to know i imagine that that all these people using airbrushes would just get them all naturally and just put the painting know the consistency hit the time so it's good to know there's a bit of trial and error as well for you because that's pretty much my painting style i play around until i get it right and then don't plan to repeat it essentially yeah absolutely and you will find that 
day you think I've done the same thing. Why is it? Why is it not working? And it's just, just it just happens that way. Um, I'm sure there are perfect painters out there that never have any issues, but um, the, the most 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 of us mortals um, don't have that luxury. No, we don't. But now on your moving off the airbrush because I'm pretty happy with that. I've got enough information to go to there. Onto your commissions now. We don't normally sort of push commissions, but I actually think it's a really good way to to get the painting done. And I've seen some of your work, and you've done some great job. I know you probably don't have a lot of Lord of the Rings commissions, but uh, what's the actual process for it? They get in contact with you, but do people assemble the models first and you paint them, or do you assemble them? What's the deal? It's both, to be honest with you. At its rawest sense, it's down to you're paying for time. Um, so someone will come to me and they'll say, I want x and x done i want this done i would like that done then it's about a conversation really there's an awful lot of pre-planning before the work's done um about sort of what sort of level they want what their expectations are whether they want me to build it whether they build it um so it's there's no kind of you know single answer for that really some people don't want to do anything they want to or they want to order the plastic um or resin and send it to me and i do it all some people are like, oh, I really, really want something painted to a certain standard, but it's expensive, so I will do everything I can to save a little bit of money. So they will prep it all beforehand and, and send it assembled and things. So it's just down to the individual, really. I was actually thinking, from an Australian point of view, we might actually be better off just getting it, um, ordering online, sending it to your place, and saving the, the half price, whatever it costs us, and spending that on the commission instead of... Absolutely. I I, um, I have no idea around the details of that, but I have had... I have clients from your part of the world that have done exactly that they've bought they've bought stuff um and sent it to me and and then i've obviously assembled it and and painted it and and sent it back to them i suppose technically they're just gifting it to me and then i'm sending them back a a, a non-new product anymore so i imagine it's it's fine but um um yeah it it definitely works that way done done a few jobs for people your way i do a lot of my clients are in, in the states as well so we do a similar thing um, I've got my local gaming store who sponsors my podcast. I won't necessarily I won't sort of turn it into an advert or mention their names and things, but um, I'll often pick up stuff as well. Most of the time, I'll get my clients to buy the stuff for me um, rather than me going out there with my credit card and spending lots and lots and lots and lots of money um, just in case. You've got to be careful in this this world, especially with small businesses, that people don't let you down. Um, we don't want to be left with a load of models I don't need, but um, I generally get my clients to purchase the miniatures and then um, either send them to me or... I collect them myself from a local store or, or it, it, again, it's just flexible, really. People want different things. People, people often have models and had a client recently that wanted me to strip some models first. And it's just, it just changes really depending on what the individual needs are. I think for a lot of people who are doing things like that army, the dead army, that's popular at the moment where you've got three really important characters that you want a good paint job on. And then a bunch of like army, the dead that almost anyone can paint to a really good standard. It would be a really good option to to enlist someone like you to help them out with it because you could get the models you really wanted, but also have the um have the the army painting yourself as well, or even just send it all off. Yeah, it's it. I, I'll get complete, completely different sort of ends of the spectrum. So at the moment, I'm working on a, a massive army commission for uh for a, for for, the, for a Herald's Heresy army that's almost a month's work all in itself. Um, but then I'll have commissions that'll be one or two models. Um, so it's um, 
it, it's, it's a wide range and it's just about squeezing it in my calendar really so um i i can have you know i'll paint anything it doesn't even need to be a game if someone said can you do an airfix model for me i could paint anything and again it's not telling you an advert it's just you just if if it can be painted with acrylic paints and i have the skills to do it then i will i'll, I'll do it and i'll just um it's about what well, you know squeezing it in and doing what the client wants what they need people have so many different motivations for getting a commission painter so the guy i'm doing the work for at the moment is can can paint but he's busy so he paints some of his armies and some of the commissions. Because um, gaming's the, probably maybe maybe a more important part of the model. I would, as a terrible advert for my own services, I would never use a commission painter. And people say, well, obviously, because <laughs> you are a commission painter. But um, I couldn't play with something that I hadn't painted myself. And I've always been that way, even before I was, even sort of 10 years ago, before I, when I was just getting back into the hobby, and I was nowhere near as good a painter as I was now. And there was a very a good friend of mine, a very good painter who's been in White Dwarf and things before. He's now a 3D designer he, where he works for. He's done some work for um, Private Press in the past, and he's done all the Guild Ball models. And Russ Charles, and he offered to paint me a model for a War Machine Army as a gift. He said, I'll paint it for you. I was like, I'm really sorry, but as much as you're amazing, I, I want to do it myself because it's my own thing. <laughs> And it's very personal to to everyone, I suppose. Is it's, it's what's important. Some people, like you suggested, what you like you said, they might go, "Well, you know what? I'll paint the dead myself, but let's get the characters done." Um, some people just think the the bulk of doing a whole army is too much for them, so they'll outsource it. So it's it's there's something there for everyone who would consider it. Um, and the people that are only ever would only ever paint their own model would only ever paint their own models anyway. Um, You've got to choose. We'll see where the contrast has an effect. So I thought I was, I was talking to someone the other day about the contrast paints um, and they messaged me and said, um, well, you know, these new contrast paints that, that GW brought out, do you think that will affect you at all? Not really. <laughs> people who, painters will always paint and people that don't like painting won't paint. I think those contrast paints will make things easier for people who want to paint to, to game. Um, I enjoy painting because they want to get stuff on the table, but not because they want to kind of... Um, continuously improve maybe and make it and turn it to, to turn into some kind of art form um and you know i think they're a, another great tool for getting armies on the table quickly um i'm looking forward to playing around with myself but yeah your people that use commission painters will always use commission painters oh that's good to hear yeah we'll keep using commission painters there's nothing wrong with with your choice either way so if you want to use them go for it if you don't don't that's that's all fine i like that um, I do want to mention it because it's something we haven't really talked about on the podcast at all, and we like to cover all aspects of the hobby. So getting stuff painted, if you value it, definitely consider a commission painter. It doesn't have to be Stu. There's plenty around as well, but we will put a link in the show notes for anyone who's really interested as well. And um, I know you've had some experience. Check out the army, that, uh, not the army, the lake town that you did, which is very impressive and an army that anyone would be proud of, quite frankly. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's very much tabletop army. It's the sort of standard that people would pay me to do. Um, I don't like to. I don't have the time to spend too long on my own stuff, and all the all the inclination really. If I spent if I spent trying to make everything display, then I'd never move and do the next project or the next project, the next project. But uh, yeah, thank you very much. And no problem at all. And thanks for all the advice. I'm going to go and uh, when I get the next chance of the airbrush, I'm going to try all these things and make a horrible mess everywhere, which is going to be great fun. <laughs> Just keep playing with it, and that's the thing. And um, I mean, you know, it's it's quite hard to get on an audio format talk about things like that you see all the the tutorials online and things are obviously video because that works for people but if you've listened to this and you thought that just sounds too complicated then i do apologize airbrushing is actually a lot easier 
than than it sounds i think it's a lot easier in practice than 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 it is in theory um and it depends what you're painting you might be that you you listen to this and you do play multiple systems and it might be that you don't use the airbrush for lord of the rings miniatures to start with but you know what that space marine army it works makes more sense to you because it's all armor and it's a little bit easier so just just give it a go and save yourself some time yeah, I recommend try it on any any big model. It, it blew my mind with the trolls how you could get the the flesh down so easily. And I got it on my first go pretty much. Well, all I would got told my brother showed me how to clean the brush, and he said, "Point it this way, pull the trigger, and away you go." So it, <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's just try an error, you'll be fine. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Stu. It's uh, very exciting to have another international guest on, and I can't wait to to hear what this sounds like myself and re-listen to all the advice we got. So it's good to have you there. What's next for you for Middle Earth? What's your next project? You mentioned before about the box set, but is there something that you, you're really keen to do? I don't, there's, there's lots, really. And then it's going to be trying to make sure that I kind of pick them in the right order. I have um, I have a warband of Iron um, Hill that I got off a friend who was going to get into the hobby. So I bought those. Um, to use as an ally for the for the late town. So I, I did the armor on those a few a few weeks ago when I was actually doing some work. I needed I had the right colors in the airbrush, so I thought I only added about an hour to my time, so I did it all in one go. So I will probably look to finish those off. But after that, it will be knocking off those armies that I talked about at the, at the beginning of the show. So getting the legendary legion, getting the king, return of the king done because it will be relatively quick. It's another army off the shelf, and then working on that mortar on that. I want to do some more events soon, especially as my uh, home life starts to settle down. If anyone can hear the screaming baby in the background, my wife's returned. But um, as soon as my life sort of settles down, I want to get doing some more events. And um, hopefully the second half of the year, I'll get a bit more time to start going to events. And then, you know, events breed, breed lists, breed painting models, don't they? It's always the way it tends to motivate you to get things finished when you, you need it done for a certain event. Certainly does. Well, good luck with that. And it's good to have you on the, the Lord of the Rings scene. It's always good to have extra people. And I love that the scene's growing and expanding out to other people. So thank you very much for coming on, Stu. Thank you very much for having me. And remember, listeners, traps win games. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon Podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on thegreendragonpodcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener, until we meet again.